Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What with Dan and Judy. Today we've got Daniel Toker on, who is a neuroscientist. Hi, Daniel. Hello. How are we today? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Good. Um, so do you want to jump straight into it and tell everyone a little bit about what you actually do, Daniel? Yeah, sure. So I am a postdoctoral scientist at UCLA. So postdoc just means that I have my PhD, but I'm not a professor, but yet. Um, and at UCLA, I research largely states of unconsciousness. So things like coma, vegetative states, uh, certain kinds of seizures, and anesthesia. Um, with the hope of not only understanding what's going on, but also to help patients who aren't waking up from states like that, like um, vegetative patients. So how did this all come about? Why have you gone into into neuroscience? Have you always been interested in the brain or? Yeah, so um, I actually, when I was younger, imagined myself becoming something more in the creative arts or humanities. Um, I think in high school, I was, I was very much humanities focused and going to college, I wanted to become a creative writer. Um, but my first sort of interest in the brain did start from a fairly young age. Um, I remember in anatomy class in 10th grade when I first covered the brain and it hadn't ever dawned on me that, you know, we could study this, this organ scientifically and just, you know, going over like, how neurons conduct electricity and all that, it suddenly dawned on me when I was, I guess, 15 at the time. Like, holy wow, somehow all of my conscious experiences, all my memories, all of that is generated somehow by biochemical reactions. How is that possibly true? And I was kind of in a daze for a week. <laughs> um, and so since then, I was interested in this question of how does the brain give rise to experience? But it wasn't until college that I really began to pursue it. It is incredible, isn't it? The brain. Like, I always think the brain is, is such an odd thing because it's thinking about itself, and that always that always blows my mind a little bit. Yeah. Also, when everyone, you know, when people say things like "Oh, my brain is tired today," that always trips me out because it's it's a brain saying "my brain." Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, what was it? Sort of your path from going uh, about fifteen years old, discovering this this organ that you've had an interest in and developed an interest to where you are now because doing a doctor that's a that's a long process so what was that journey for you like um long and hard <laughs> so uh it started in i guess what kind of made it the switch is you know i got to college and i began taking creative writing classes and i realized immediately that i hated it <laughs> and i, I and made the, the wrong decision in terms of field of study uh and i was sort of ambling around trying to find what what else to study uh and i still had this sort of old abiding interest in how does the brain create experience um but i i didn't feel like i had the the science or the math chops to actually pursue it um, but what changed that was reading carl sagan's cosmos the summer after my freshman year um if you haven't read it or seen you know, the original series, I, I recommend it to everybody because it's, it's it's not only a beautiful explanation of what is known, but I think what really struck me was how Sagan portrayed the beauty of the scientific process itself. Mm. Um, you know, sort of just putting in the work to understand the universe better and how we woke up in it. So that inspired me to make the switch. So uh, as an undergrad, I actually studied... Um, we didn't have a neuroscience major. So typically, if you want to study neuroscience, you would major in psychology or molecular biology, and you get what we call the certificate in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really want to major in molecular biology or psychology. So I actually majored in philosophy of science and got my certificate in neuroscience. But on a practical level, I was taking equal amounts of classes in both. Um, and then I joined a neuroscience research lab in college. And this is something that I, I would say is uh, not as well known to people who are thinking of becoming scientists, but aren't quite sure. If you want to become a scientist, it's really, really important to get lab experience as early as possible. Um, that ended up being the most important factor in getting me to where I am now. 
Yeah, that, that's actually a really good point. We've had a, another neuroscientist on from the UK and she brought up the exact same point that lab experience has helped her so much um, progressing through her education and getting career, you know, um, jobs and things. Yeah. And, you know, well, one, there's the career element of just, you know, the professor you work with can write you the letter of recommendation. It can help you figure out what kind of research you want to do. But I mean, honestly, I think most scientists feel that most of what they learned was just by doing it, by being in the lab environment. The classroom is really just giving you like the really bare bones foundation. Um, and then when you get into a lab, you realize what it means to really specialize in one topic. Yeah. So um, for you, after getting your certificate and going into this, this lab and working there for a bit, what's, what's sort of the process after that? And what were you doing in that lab to further your interest in this subject so that lab um i I really only joined it because i was taking a class with someone who was working in that lab and she was like oh yeah this professor is great you should join so um i just emailed him i had pretty much nothing to do with what the lab was actually researching um he very kindly accepted me into his lab and the lab um it ended up being the best choice of I think ever made in my life. Um, but this particular lab, their focus was on understanding human memory. And it used an approach that um, I now realize is maybe a little bit unusual in neuroscience, but I think should be used more widely, where they would both focus on building uh, like simulations and computational models, and then testing those in real data. Um, neuroscience isn't really well known for having robust theory, uh, but this lab was really focused on that. Um, but of course, when I first joined, I didn't have the, you know, computer programming skills to do analyze, uh, to analyze or create fancy computer simulations. So in the beginning, all they had me do was run subjects. So I started on this sleep and memory study. So I would show up at lab at like 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. and I would sit subjects in front of a computer and I would just explain this memorization task to them. Um, and then I would just sit there doing nothing and then I'd pay them when, uh, when they were done. But then slowly I began learning how to code, how to analyze data. And then by my, the summer after my junior year, I knew enough computer programming skills to uh, be able to analyze some brain recordings. Um, and I can go into that project if you want me to. Yeah, please. So um, so I went to Princeton and there everyone has to do um, undergraduate thesis. So, uh, or like a research thesis. So I approached the professor of this lab. Um, his name was Ken Norman. And I said, hey, Ken, you know, I'm interested in perception of time. Is there any kind of research project I can do about that and he says oh you know funny you should ask because a grad student of mine Olga asked me the same question a week ago um and she and I threw some ideas around for a study that uh she could do so why don't you help her out um help her design the experiment analyze the data run the subjects um so I began this collaboration with um I think she's a postdoc now I'm not sure her name is uh, Olga Lazitsky mm-hmm. and we wanted to answer the question of like, let's say I ask you uh, how much time did you spend doing X or mm-hmm. um, let's say, you know, you were walking from the store to your home and ask you how much time do you think passed in that interval? Mm-hmm. We wanted to understand what was the brain mechanism that would allow you to one, perceive a sense of elapsed time, but also to remember how much time passed. Um, and the professor, Ken, he had some interesting ideas from the psychology literature of what might be going on, um, which we wanted to test in the brain. So uh, we spent a few months sort of throwing out ideas for an experiment, for you know sticking humans in a brain scanner, giving them a task to do, and then analyzing their brain data, and then seeing how their brain data predicted their behavior so what did that uh how did we how do we perceive time did you get an, an answer sort of you know i mean with other stuff everything's very preliminary yeah um and also what's interesting with the time perception literature is that it's thought that 
there are different brain mechanisms involved in different scales of time. So the circuitry involved in perceiving time on like the second scale is going to be different from the minute scale to the hour scale to the days, weeks, etc. Wow. So we we were thinking more along the lines of like twenty minute scales. Yeah. Um, and what we found was that the more activity changed in a part of the brain called your entorhinal cortex, the more time you remember as having passed. And this actually makes quite a lot of sense because um, this part of the brain is one involved in memory, um, but it's also involved in sense of space. And we know from the psychology literature that, uh, and also some of the neuroscience literature that your sense of space and time are very related to one another. That's some of the same circuits might be doing both. Um, so that was, that was quite cool. We could see this in fMRI data. So this sort of large scale human brain signals. Was this project what you carried on to do as your doctorate thesis? Or did you move on to, to another um, experiment? Uh, I, I think I, I switch fields for every paper <laughs> that I write <laughs> in my experience. Uh, so when I started grad school, so I, I should also say that uh, between undergrad and grad school, I had a number of research jobs, which is also very common in science, particularly neuroscience. Um, for most people who are considering going into a PhD for science, um, again, the thing that matters the most is research experience. So a lot of people will work as a research assistant in a lab after college for a year or two, um, or a lab manager, uh, and then apply. So I first worked for a few months at a lab at Caltech running um, more of a psychology type study. Then I worked at a neurotech startup for a bit. And then, sorry, wrong order. First Caltech, (laughs) then I was a lab manager at Berkeley for about a year. Then I worked at a startup for about a year. And then I went to grad school. Uh, And each of those was a different um, topic. But when I finally got to grad school, what I started wanting to do was more memory type stuff, but I pretty quickly drifted into this, the more consciousness type research. Um, And that led me down a very deep rabbit hole I did not expect to be going into. So for a lot of um, PhD programs, if you're in STEM, you spend the first year doing rotations. So um, you, spend a few months working in three or four different labs, getting experience in each of them. And then at the end of it, you pick which lab you want to work in. So one of the labs that I picked to work in was a theoretical neuroscience lab where, you know, everyone was very, very math focused. And that's something that I didn't really have very much experience in. And I proposed a project for measuring um, this mathematical quantity called integrated information. Um, from brain data so it's basically how much information is being shared across an entire brain network and i picked it because a lot of people think this might have something to do with consciousness mm-hmm. um but focusing on this project sent me down the math and theory rabbit hole and i found that i was actually much better at it than i expected and i really enjoyed it um and so that also shifted my research focus quite a bit i became much more computational than i was before um i, I can go more into to that if, if if you want i don't know how much detail i should be going into no no that's 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 good that i'm i'm quite fascinated how you've sort of developed this um idea that you love and want to work on the brain in unconscious states but there's so many different areas you're pulling in from and done yeah. research on to actually grasp a bigger picture of what you finally wanted to get get towards yeah well that's also sort of the nature of neuroscience right because to, I mean, to understand the brain we need chemistry psychology physics math medicine molecular biology it's what's that part of why i love the field it's so interdisciplinary um but yeah so i i spent a while um first of all learning the mathematics of information theory so uh, if if we want to say that when you're unconscious there's a disruption to information processing in the brain how do we actually track this math like what does that mean mathematically um because we can we can say that you know mm-hmm. but there's this whole mathematical literature to show this stuff formally um, so I sort of took a deep dive into that. 
Um, and then the next project I, I went into was thinking about, okay, if there is this disruption to information processing in the brain when we're unconscious, then what's causing that? What's mediating that? And so you can think of some states like, if you have a traumatic brain injury, then it's a little more obvious because you've disrupted the network itself. But what about cases like deep sleep, anesthesia, or seizures? That the network itself, the brain is physically unchanged. What's changed is the patterns of electric activity going through the brain. Mm. And some and we can see those changes, but we don't know why a particular kind of change to electric activity will disrupt information processing and make you lose consciousness. So then I had this idea and I, I honestly don't remember where it started. It was sort of already in the zeitgeist that, and this is going to be, this is going to get a little bit more technical. Um, That's good. It's good. But there's this old idea, mostly from physics um, that neuroscientists have been throwing around for a little bit that for a system to be, uh, to optimally process information, it needs to be in or close to what's called the critical state. So mm-hmm. um, critical, a critical state is basically a phase transition of some kind. So more common examples are if you take water um, or let's say ice and you melt it, when you take the temperature to the melting point, so 100 degrees Celsius, it's at a critical state. Um, a lot of interesting stuff, a lot of math, and physics is happening in critical states across different systems, different kinds of phase transitions. And one interesting thing that people don't quite understand yet mathematically is that systems tend to be able to process a lot of information at these phase transitions. So there's, this, uh, there's been an idea in neuroscience for a while now that maybe when the brain is operating normally and healthy, um, particularly during conscious states, maybe it's near some kind of phase transition. Um, so that got me thinking, okay, well, what, what would that transition be? Clearly that, you know, the, the brain isn't like melting and freezing, you know? The, so what's the phase diagram here of the, of the brain? And that took me down this whole other rabbit hole that I wasn't expecting to go into of chaos theory, because one of the um, sort of most, the, or best studied examples of a phase transition, especially when it relates to, information processing is what's called the edge of chaos. So chaos really just is the butterfly effect. So a system where a tiny change makes a big change um, and you can measure it mathematically. And there's a phase transition in a system from basically the butterfly effect applies or doesn't apply. So in a non-chaotic system, you can make a big change and it won't really affect the system. It'll go back to what it would have been doing before you changed it. Um, this, and this there's so been, cool. I'm, I'm absolutely geeking out now. This is this is so cool. I love stuff like this. I I, I do I do too. <laughs> I, <laughs> I should less than years on it. <laughs> but um, yeah. So there's this old finding going back from the 80s that is replicated over and over again in different systems, and no one really understands on a deep mathematical level why this is true. But for whatever reason, at this boundary between chaos and periodicity so butterfly effect versus no butterfly effect systems tend to be able to process information really really well they tend to hold information well um they can they they show really complex behaviors this has even been shown recently in deep neural networks which is sort of all the rage in the ai world there's this finding that if a deep neural network is at this critical boundary that information can pass through infinitely many layers of the network. Whereas if it goes to either the chaotic side or the non-chaotic side, uh, it loses the ability to handle information. So this has been found in many systems, including deep neural networks. This got me thinking, right, maybe maybe this is the boundary that the brain needs to be at when it's conscious. Uh, How do we test that? It turns out that testing for chaos in a real system is a really difficult and very old problem. Um, so I ju- just wanted to test this idea and the brain sent me down this other rabbit hole for about two years, um, <laughs> just finding a robust method for measuring this kind of thing in real data. Um, I didn't invent the method. It's 
you know, mathematicians have been working on this for a while, um, but their findings are sort of published in obscure applied math journals and haven't really been applied to biology. So I published a paper just last year that sort of combined these different developments in math to build an automated toolkit that biologists could use to test this kind of thing in their data. Wow. Even if it's like really noisy brain data. Um, so, you know, my interest in consciousness and, you know, different brain states led me down the chaos theory rabbit hole and I yeah. published a paper in it. Um, and over the last about year and a half, two years, I've been applying those methods to real brain data, uh, but that isn't published yet. Uh, the results, I think, look quite promising. Um, That's good. But yeah, I'd, that would have to be vetted by peer review first. <laughs> well, I think we're all through the licking glass now. Um, but I, I'm interested to know how, with this data you've accumulated, in the world of neuroscience, how is it being applied um, to maybe help people or an aid in not further study, but actually improve the quality of life for people? Yeah, so I definitely work more on the basic science end, um, except in the sense that for my more math-y projects, I always make my code available online uh, for you know more clinical researchers to use if they want. Um, but I think it's really important to understand on a basic level, we need to know what is happening in the brain when you lose consciousness, when you go into a coma, when you don't, for example, wake up from a coma before we can develop uh, clinical treatments for this. Because otherwise I think we're sort of shooting in the dark. <clears throat> in the dark. Um, that said, the lab that I currently work at at UCLA is much more clinically focused. So there are people in my lab who, like their research focus is really to develop treatments uh, to speed up recovery from coma. I'm not, I'm not so involved in that research myself, but I can talk about it. No, no, it's fine. I just what I was just interested to see how um, that what sort of things were go, going on there, but that's that's fine. I, I think what you said is is um, really quite useful as well to people listening because you've almost led it to a couple of different areas you could go into within neuroscience. Like you could focus on the the theory and the data side, and then mm-hmm. there's the the clinical side as well, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, there's room for everyone in neuroscience. If you just want to study behavior. There's room for you if you want to do just math. There's room for you or clinical stuff. Um, and I think neuroscience benefits from people dabbling in all these areas. Um, what would be something that you're really excited to sort of unravel um, about consciousness or unconsciousness, whatever, whichever one you would prefer to talk about in the next sort of five to 10 years? What kind of things are getting you excited to, to understand about? Well, five to 10 years. Yeah. Uh, me personally, I, I just really want us to have a better mathematical grasp of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I very firmly uh, believe in, the, in like the, the physics model of doing science where, you know, you try to develop um, mathematical theories and then test those theories in real data which I should say is a little bit unusual for neuroscience. Uh, I mentioned this before, but neuroscience is not very theory driven, Mm. um, which I think is to the detriment of the field. Uh, And there's sort of institutional reasons for this. Like there are theoretical neuroscientists for sure, um, but they don't really talk with experimentalists um, and vice versa. And a lot of it is a a training issue, but if, because there's there's so much to learn, right? If you, if, if you're going into neuroscience and let's say you want to study this particular circuit in the mouse brain, like you, you got to spend years just learning those techniques and the details of this particular circuit. You don't have the time to learn information theory and nonlinear dynamics and deep neural networks and vice versa. If you're spending the time learning all that math, you're not really learning how to conduct these experiments. Um, I try to straddle both of these worlds. Um, I'm not the only one for, for sure, but um, do you think that would help neuroscience if it sort of delved down a bit more, a bit more in the middle? Uh, you know, uh, uh, taking both sides of the clinical and the theory and, and combining them more. I definitely think so. 
Mm. Um, that's why I've, I've spent um, a lot of my time has been developing tools. So um, my first two papers from grad school uh, were basically just developing tools that experimentalists could use because basically, you know, I'd find some ideas from theorists and I would say, okay, how do I actually go about testing this? Because the, 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 a lot of theorists are just content saying, you know, here's a mathematical result. There you go. Um, and one, it's hard for experimentalists to understand the theory. Um, and two, even if they understand it, it's hard for them to figure out how to test it. So a lot of what I do is build like easy to use computational tools for the experimentalists to test the theories. So for example, my last paper on chaos theory, I try to make it as user-friendly as possible where you don't need to know anything under the hood. You just have your data, you plug it into my tool and it will just churn through it for you and it'll spit out the answer. Is this chaotic or not? (laughs) Open source neurosciencing. (laughs) Exactly. And it's actually, I mean, I try to make it so broad and easy to use that it could work for any kind of data. Um, And one of the coolest applications I've seen is that someone published a paper this year using my tool to analyze um, epidemiology data for COVID. Oh, wow. Um, Because that's the beauty of math, right? If math could be used, I use it for the brain, but, you you know, it could be applied to anything. Yeah, absolutely. So for you as a researcher at university, are you required to be involved with um, teaching or educating uh, people coming into the university? Do you have to do any um, seminars or lectures? Yeah. So um, as a postdoc, so I am now, the answer is no, but that's sort of the exception. So um, I don't know how it is in the UK, but in the US, um, PhD students typically teach or what we call TA. Uh, so I helped teach two courses at UC Berkeley. One was on the evolution of the human brain, and the other one was on just sort of general uh, circuits and systems neuroscience. So um, when we talk about neuroscience, there's different love, like scales that you could look at. So there's the scale of you know single cells and protein channels and all that, and you could zoom way out and talk about brain areas, um, and, but most of the actual things happening sort of in the middle uh, as circuits of cells. So it was a class at that level focusing on um, different kinds of perception, you know, memory, et cetera, um, which is quite a lot of fun, but we, you don't typically, you're not the lecturer, you know, there's the professor who lectures the class and then it splits up into small groups. Um, and then on the, on the undergrads come to you as a PhD student um, with their anxieties and their panic and you help them understand what the professor said (laughs) yeah yeah, that's fair enough um what would be some personality traits that you see in yourself and maybe some fellow researchers around you that you think have allowed you to get here it's kind of all asking you aside i don't know how you're gonna answer that one i don't know know if there's a the universal personality trait um I think one thing that might be universal among scientists in general is we've all come to the conclusion at some point in our lives that we know nothing and (laughs) we're willing to put in like ridiculous amounts of time to Mm. find an answer to just one question. Mm. I I guess the other kind of a question as well is where can neuroscience take you you know you you sort of mentioned you'd worked for a startup you'd been doing some research in labs what kind of careers can you take the neuroscience world into it really depends on what kind of neuroscience you do and what kind of skills you developed in neuroscience so uh if for example you're focusing on molecular neuroscience and protein channels and chemistry then uh, there's probably more room for you in the biotech world or pharmaceuticals or, you know, that sort of career. If you're thinking about non-academic careers um, on the flip side, if you're more toward my end of <clears throat> analyzing big data sets or working on the math side, then there's not a whole lot in non-academic jobs that, pertains to the brain specifically, but you are developing a lot of skills that 
um, overlap with data science. So I've seen a lot of people uh, leave academic research from the kind of work that I do and go into companies like Netflix even to uh, do more of the data science set of things. Um, I think doing a neurotech startup is a little bit unusual. There's not a whole lot out there of that sort of thing with a few mm -hmm. exceptions like um, Elon Musk's Neuralink. Mm -hmm. um, but it really is. I think if you're going to spend the time getting a PhD in, in neuroscience, um, most of the neuroscience related jobs would be in academia. And as a field, I guess we always, I think we always get told, I don't know if this is a, a myth or not. We always get told that we know very little about the brain still to this day. Um, and is it neuroscience? I take it is a field that is only going to expand over the, the coming 10, 20, 30 years. Is that right in saying that? yeah well i think yeah i i do i get this question a lot um it is true that we don't know a whole lot about the brain on the other hand i think it's underappreciated how much we do know mm -hmm. about the brain um especially on the single neuron level like we we're we've pretty much got that one down i, I would say we understand quite well um, there's a lot of details still to be filled out, but the, the broad strokes, we understand how single neurons work. We understand <clears throat> how they, for example, uh, interact um, neurochemically. So we understand, for example, how one neuron communicates to another, how that sets off this cascade of opening various protein channels on the, the cell surface and how that lets um, ions in and out of the cell, which changes its electric properties, which causes these electric spikes. Uh, we also, we know um, sort of small scale circuits we're starting to understand decently well. Um, we have a decent sense now for what brain area does what, uh, but there's still a lot of unknowns. So um, you could say that the neural code is still uncracked, for example. If we we have some sense for how neurons are carrying information, um, but there's a lot of work to be done on that um, on many levels. So um, we know the broad scale circuitry involved in memory and how memory is stored, but there's still a ton of detail to be worked out there. Um, when it comes to one neuron, a group of neurons sending a message to another group, we have some sense for what they're doing. For example, we know that um, if a, if a I have to zoom out for a second. So let's say you have a, a neuron that encodes uh, your mom's face, for example, which mm -hmm. there are definitely neurons in your brain that will reliably start firing when they, when you see your mother. Um, when the one important element of this is the rate of their electric spiking. So um, we know that neurons will spike faster and faster and faster. Uh, the more, this is so hard to explain. Um, let's say you are thinking about your mother's face. This one might start spiking a little bit and then you actually see her, it'll start spiking a lot faster. Uh, and that's part of how it's sending its message. Like it's saying, I'm really confident that this person is out there right now. That's part of the neural code, right? But there's so much more we don't understand um, how neurons are carrying or storing information. So, I don't know if that answered your question. No, all. no, it did. I, 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 proper geeking out right now. I love stuff like this. But it, so we're kind of saying we understand like the structure of the brain and it's sort mm -hmm. of it's basic things, but how it does complex tasks, we're kind of just starting to unravel. Is that right? Is that fair? Yeah, and I suppose if you compare it to other organs in the body, like the heart, you know, it mechanically pumps blood around the body. Compared mm -hmm. the brain, compared to that, I know there's obviously a lot more to the heart, but chemically. Uh, chemical reactions creating electronic reactions that pulse around the brain is just mind-blowing isn't it oh oh yeah i mean if you think about the fact that we have was it like a somewhere on the order of a quarter quadrillion connections between 86 billion neurons and each of them is conducting electricity and you know it's just networks within networks within networks within networks and then there's also the, the question and this is maybe a more me putting on my philosopher theorist hat what would it mean to understand the brain yeah. would do we know what every single neuron does or is it good to have uh, like a general theory for what neurons do as opposed to what every specific neuron does 
yeah, I guess it could get a bit dark if we could understand what every single thing in your brain does. Yeah. Wow. And even if we could stimulate, for like, if I had a perfect simulation of your brain down to the level of, of protein channels, I wouldn't be in any better position to understand what it's doing. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't have a, a framework to explain what I'm seeing, even if I could simulate you. So how, I mean, over the next 10, 20 years, are we, we will start to develop more of a, an understanding of these complex brain processes. Is that what we're saying? I, yeah, I think so. Uh, and this is, I think, going to be driven both by advances in theory, um, but there's also some really cool techniques coming out. So um, we're getting better at imaging the activity of um, many single neurons. Um, so there's stuff called uh, calcium imaging, for example, where you can uh, observe live the activity of a bunch of neurons without actually sticking electrodes in them. So this is sort of the, the classic impediment. Mm. So if you wanted to understand the electric behavior of a neuron, you had to literally put an electrode inside the neuron. And these things are you know, microscopic cells. Um, and you could maybe do it most a few of these at once. Um, whereas now with advances in chemistry and genetic engineering, we can image more and more neurons uh, in an awake behaving animal um, simultaneously. And then what's even cooler is that we're also getting better at stimulating neurons while visualizing their activity. Um, so there's this technique uh, called optogenetics where you take this, I forget which animal it comes from, but there's a, a protein that um, opens in response to light. And so you can engineer an animal to express this protein on the surface of its neurons. And so basically if you shine a tiny light on that one cell, this channel, this protein will open up um, and then ions will rush in and the cell will spike electrically. So um, before to inactivate a neuron, you would again have to stick a tiny electrode in it, whereas now we can, um, we have much fancier techniques and we can stimulate many at the same time while observing the activity of many at the same time. So this is going to allow us, I think, not only to understand the behavior of the system, but also to, you know, perturb the system in very precise ways. Uh, so I think that's going to have really huge implications for understanding the brain in the coming decades. Wow. Wow, it is it is really really fascinating. For for you, you've spoken quite a lot about maths and uh, the code you've been writing across all STEM um, subjects or careers these days. You kind of have to know coding um, to some degree. Do you wish that that was a skill you learned when you were younger? That's a good question, and y yes and no. Uh, I definitely struggled a little bit in the beginning when I was trying to learn this stuff. On the other hand, I personally had no interest in math or programming until I realized I could use it to study something that I did like, which is the brain. Uh, and that totally changed my motivation to do it and also my sense of how good I was at it or not. I think a lot of people, um, when they encounter math or computer science or, or programming, um, I think it's easy to confuse lack of interest with lack of ability, mm, which I certainly did. Um, I always thought I was bad at math um, and programming. I took a, a programming class my first year of college and I struggled enormously um, and I thought I was bad at it. Turns out I just didn't find it that interesting until I was able to apply it to something that I found was very cool. Yeah, so it's certainly... I think uh, that comes down to some sometimes how we have our education systems. I think we we just get taught maths, don't we? We just without really ever explaining what you can use it for. I think a lot of things get taught like that. You just get taught the process without, hey, look, this is what the process can lead to. Definitely, and also yeah, it's also true of um, science. You know, we're we're taught science in a way that emphasizes what is known. Um, versus what is unknown, which is far cooler, I think, or even how we come to know what we know. Yeah. Um, and I think this was what I personally found in Carl Sagan's writings that just totally shifted my worldview and my thinking about science. You know, it, it's, 
in school, it's presented to you as, as a body of knowledge, not as a way of thinking. And I think that's fundamentally flawed. I, I do think from personal experience as well, and I think you'll probably agree with this by the sounds of it, when you just get given information, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. But when you've got like a, a problem you're solving mm-hmm. and you go away and you find ways to solve that problem, immediately they stick in my head and then I can reapply them to different things. But just being yeah. giving information, it's just, it's dull, isn't it? It doesn't really excite you. Definitely. I agree. I think that's also what we're trying to do here with this podcast is is give people an idea of, yeah, these these sort of foundation boring quotation mark um subjects you're doing at school actually if you apply them to something that you love and potentially will want to do in the future they can actually lead you down a quite incredible road yeah definitely or i mean even if you could get like give students a sense for um like here are these really cool things that you might study when it gets to college um and just give them a sense like you know i know this stuff is boring but this will help you do this cooler thing later um you know i don't know why for example we're not taught things like or even just the idea of quantum mechanics and general relativity in high school because those mm-hmm. things are mind-blowing and i'm not to, to anybody um far more interesting than the classic high school physics problem of you know if we throw this at this angle and this velocity where is it going <laughs> to land you know like who, who cares <laughs> <laughs> well no I, I i totally agree and i think to be honest you're just sitting here listening to you about what you've you've done the work you've been working on is you know you'd said that to me at 10 years old my mind would have been like wow you know this is i'm I'm like that now already but you know you do that to a bunch of school kids and they're probably going to walk into the next biology lesson a lot more interested aren't they i agree and i think i mean it's been said before by many people but we all start out as scientists and artists. We're all curious as kids. Mm. And I think, unfortunately, that's kind of beaten out of us in school. Definitely, definitely. Um, so I guess the, the next time direction we want to go in is what's some of the biggest positives or a couple of positives you've had out of this career so far for yourself? Mm. That's a good question. Um, for me personally... I I just really like learning uh, and I'm very grateful and privileged to have found a career where I can get paid to think. Um, and honestly, I think, I think it's the biggest part of it for me. Um, you know, that if you're in academia, the, the salary is not lavish by any means, um, but it's, you know, you can survive and you can get by. And I think it's, I really like the... F- I love the fact that I can wake up and just think about, you know, like, what am I going to research today? How am I going to research it? I can guide my own uh, experiments and studies. And I have sort of carved a niche for myself where I can live by just investigating what I find interesting. I think you made a really good point. Um, at the beginning of that when you answered that question when you said you have a love for learning and I think for me personally my love for learning developed after I left school when I Mm -hmm. delved into other things that I just found it I read a book about it and I delve into it a bit more and I think it's important for people to to know that and to understand that because you're at school I think you you get a bit just a bit bored of learning but once you leave school that you realize there's this whole world was that that the case for you were you sort of at school you just went through the motions and then once you left you you developed a love for learning that's a good question um I think I've always had a love for learning I just applied it to different things um no yeah I I think for for me I I always had it it just wasn't applied to science um so my experience is a little bit like yours in the sense that it took me uh, something outside of school to realize that I wanted to learn more about science and how cool science could be. Um, but I, I was always very, very academic since I was pretty much, a. I think my, my nickname, some family when I was a baby was the professor. <laughs> That's a so great nickname. It, it goes deep. <laughs> So what would also be some negatives that you've found of this industry? Oh, whew, there are many. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, God. Where to, where to begin? 
Uh, okay, is the question, what are the negatives from the side of, like, the experience of someone going into it, or the negatives on, like, the I guess, I, I guess it would be the negatives of, of you, uh, what you found so far and what you've been doing of the, the whole world of neuroscience, I guess. Yeah. So I think, uh, hmm. uh, I think it's not inaccurate to compare academic research to a pyramid scheme, but <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay. I can see that. <laughs> um, where, most of the work is done by the people making the least money and get the least credit. Unfortunately, I think things are definitely getting better, but, um, you know, I think a lot of grad students are quite miserable because, you know, you're getting paid very, very little money and you're doing just an insane amount of work to, uh, create a paper that, if you're lucky, a few hundred people might read. Um, and this depends on the institution and the lab, but oftentimes, especially among the older generation in science, that um, it's sort of assumed that credit sort of goes to the advisor um, when often um, the brunt work was being done by the grad students or maybe the postdocs. And this this is getting better. Um, but I think the, the negative, I think that the main negative I would say is how much work is done for how little recognition and for how little pay in, in science. And that, and there's a whole, there's so many things contributing to that. Um, and a big part of it, I think is just a lack of funding for science. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. We, we always like to sort of talk about um, people's expectations of salary when they go into the industry. So we usually go away and look for some data and just see if it, uh, it sounds right to you in your own experiences. But mm-hmm. we found it really difficult and we have with a lot of scientific subjects that we've covered to really come up with an average figure of, of what people could expect to earn. I think it's important to just say that if you're going to go into the academic side of science, you're never going to earn a ton of money. You, you earn a good living. I mean, we, we looked at some figures that sort of suggested um, maybe around 50 to 60,000 US dollars. Um, I don't know how accurate that is, um, but that was sort of an average figure that, that the data came up with. Um, but then if you can go into neuroscience and you take your experience into a corporate job or, or something else, the salaries are a lot different for academic versus um, company life, I guess. Yeah, that's definitely true. And again, it, it's going to depend on what kind of um, corporate work you're doing. And also it's going to, on the academic side, it will depend on what level and the hierarchy you are. So if you're a postdoc, uh, so what I am, you're going to be earning more than a PhD student. And that's also something I should bring up that a lot of people maybe don't appreciate is that in science, PhD students get a stipend. Um, I think a lot of people erroneously believe that you have to pay for grad school which is true for a master's but for phd they pay you so long as you can secure funding um it's not again lavish um and i think it depends also on the university so um if you are a tenured professor at um a prestigious institution you could you're probably you're making between 100 and 200k um a thousand us dollars a year um, not as a postdoc though, and, um, not as an assistant professor, not as an adjunct professor. So again, like back to my knowledge about pyramid scheme, like you sort of have to make it to the top of the pyramid. Right. Yeah. And, Do you... Oh, sorry, please. Uh, I was going to say like another thing to keep in mind for anybody who's listening, who's thinking about going into academia, it is extraordinarily competitive. Um, at every sort of level, a lot of people are quote-unquote filtered out and a lot of that really has nothing to do with with skill set um so you know like not every not every phd actually a, a minority of phd students ultimately become tenured professors and that's something that you should certainly keep in mind if you're considering this path yeah so as well you you obviously said about um getting paid for like the research and becoming a, a, a whilst you're being a phd student if you can secure the funding do you ever get um companies uh, coming to you to do specific research for them uh i haven't personally 
some people do. And again, it depends on what kind of work you do. So I know a lot of the theorists who work with um, companies like Google and IBM who are interested um, both in artificial intelligence, but also just uh, theoretical neuroscience more generally. I don't actually, I don't know what that pay is like. Um, no, that's fair enough. I, but I was just wondering if it, if it was potentially regular for those bigger companies to come to universities and ask for labs to do specific work for them. So, yeah. Yeah. And again, it, it just depends on what kind of research you do. I haven't personally, because what I do is quite esoteric and more clinically applied. So, you know, I, I work with, um, doctors uh but that's just part of my like academic job uh but i do know neuroscientists who work with companies like ibm and and we we've had a couple of academics from from various various fields on the podcast and something they've always brought up which i never really thought about i guess was the importance of networking um Mm -hmm. within your field and also outside of your field um to really help build your name and profile i guess Mm -hmm. Uh, is that something in your experience you'd recommend doing as well yeah to to the degree that you're comfortable with it um i think networking sort of comes with the way we structure academia so uh, often you go to conferences for example uh, to prevent to present your research and when you're at a conference you're going to encounter people working on similar things or or um you know make connections you may not have otherwise um, and the reason networking is is important is not just to advance in your career but also to enable your research because every scientist has a very unique set of expertise or may have a unique data set unique approach, um, et cetera. So as one example, in the paper I'm working on now, um, I needed to look at a very diverse range of brain states from uh, a certain kind of seizure to anesthesia, to coma, to the LSD state. And each of each of the, I didn't have those data myself. So I needed to basically network with people who have spent the time collecting those data and who are comfortable with me analyzing them and putting their name and my name on whatever result I got. And that was only possible through networking. Would you still go into this industry knowing everything you know now? Yes, I would. Um, that's because I cannot see myself doing anything else. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time, Daniel. It's been um, super interesting. And um, Ulia, we appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I had a great time. Awesome. Thank you again. And where can people find you on our social media um, if they wanted to follow you? So uh, I have a Twitter account that I have, I don't think I've checked in months. I'm far more active on Instagram and on TikTok as the underscore brain underscore scientist um, or on my website, thebrainscientist.com. I think my website is probably the best place because that's sort of the portal to you know, my blog, my research papers, my code, and my social media. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much again, Daniel. Yeah, thank you.